Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 77. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. In this week's double feature, Docks of New York, the 1928 film by Joseph von Sternberg, and Snow on the Bluff, uh, the 2011 film by Damon Russell. Now, Malcolm, you brought this pair of films, this nice, uh, snappy, under-three-hour double feature to the pod this week. <laughs> Uh, what was your motivation beyond duration? Damn, that's a nice little rhyme you packaged there. Um, well, <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Sorry for bringing attention to it. I guess, but um, so it's been getting cold. Actually, today was pretty nice. I, I chose these last week, but it was cold last week. And you know, with the winter weather coming up, why not pick a couple of films that just match that milieu a little better? And with Docs on New York, you got, you know, the deep fog, you know, it seems pretty foggy and wintry over there. And then you have snow on the bluff. Snow is in the title. (laughs) This is a different kind of snow (laughs) that he's talking about. We should make that very clear. There is no actual snow in this film. That is true. But have you heard of a rapper who goes by the alias, the snowman? (laughs) Yeah, I think you'll be able to put two and two together. Um, And you know what? Just two, two films, you know. About, um, you just cut that. I don't know. Well, well, I mean, they're both about, like, I don't know, working, the hustle. True. Like, that's definitely there in both of them. Yeah, both main I mean, characters go to jail. Both of these films take a very uh, different look at the kind of sentimental side of life outside of uh, what I guess we'll call hustling, uh, whether that's working as a stoker for low wages on a disgusting ship or dealing, not just dealing drugs, but more so robbing drug dealers. Both of these films have a very sad look at sentimentality, Dogs of New York with romance and Snow on the Bluff with familial obligations, you know? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, they don't. They really don't romanticize uh, the hardships in life. They they make sure you know that the hard stuff is hard. Uh, but those nice moments of sentimentality sometimes are worthwhile more. And uh, I think Docs of New York obviously is the more romantic film yeah. too. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. There there are a few moments with him and his kid and Snow on the Bluff that really uh, cut deep in that regard. No, definitely. And yeah, I think there's a, a couple scenes toward the back end of Snow on the Bluff that kind of show its more tender side. That you know. For a film that's as as abrasive in style and content, it, you know, it's nice to get show a soft side. You know what I mean? So, Docs of New York, the silent film by Joseph von Sternberg from 1928. What what is this film, Malcolm? Well, we have Bill, and he's you know he's a big boy. He's a bad boy, <laughs> and the ladies love a bad boy. I'll tell you that. But he's also a stoker. He works hard all day. You wipe sweat off his you know his brow. In comes May. May tries to kill herself. Bill rescues her, and Bill basically convinces her, you know, maybe you shouldn't kill yourself. Maybe we should have a good time, and a good time turns into a great time, <laughs> um, and they fall in love at the club, you know? And, uh, you know, they even have a marriage ceremony. How official it is, you know, who knows? And, you know, it's just basically about this uh, this romance between uh, a bad, you know, two ba- bad, not bad... Uh, <laughs> I can't stop it. Bad motherfuckers. Yeah, some bamps. 
some bam- two two bamps. No, t- two people living loose, living fast, fucking around, doing what they want, feeling like you know maybe there's no one there for me in life, and they find each other. How'd you, how'd you feel about this one, JT? Um, I felt really good. I love this uh, picture. I haven't like dived into Sternberg as much as I would like. He's someone where it's like each time I, I take in another picture of his, I'm like, damn, that's fucking great. And like the way he builds like the atmosphere and all of the and all of, uh, the flicks I've seen so far, I really love. Um, but this is definitely one of my favorites I've seen from him. Yeah, it's like all of these images are filtered through that kind of haze and soft focus uh, that Sternberg always kind of builds his aesthetic around. And uh, obviously the atmosphere complements those images so much, especially when you're on uh, or really in the bowels of the ship uh, when you're getting to know this stoking job in the first couple scenes. And it's just like men smoking and, you know, lighting the cig on an open flame like fucking hard boiled. <laughs> uh, but just like him and his coworker who smokes out of a pipe, which seems a lot more convenient for working as a stoker, you know. Uh, but when you're a badass, uh, convenience doesn't matter. <laughs> No, I mean, the, the scenes in, like, well, you know, when they're stoking or whatever that thing's called, I mean, you could just see the texture, like, gleamed all over their face. I mean, the texture of, like, you know, the coal or whatever, mm-hmm. the fog, their sweat. It's such a atmospherically rich, you know, scenes that happen in there. Yeah. And so we get off the bar. The boss says, you know, if you, uh, if you <laughs> fellas come back drunk, you're going to have to work double. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the men hit the town. And what do what do men who come from a long time on a ship uh, with other men want to do when they hit the town? <laughs> they want to get drunk and they want to get laid. So where do they go? The club. <laughs> they want to turn up. Yeah. And who wouldn't, frankly? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go turn up at the club. And the way that Sternberg uses this nightclub is just like stunning. I don't know. His mise-en-scene is so detailed and almost dreamlike you know watching people interact in the deep background like just the layers of people moving about in mass but also very individually just in the background while we see uh characters just glancing at each other in this club uh there there are quite a few title cards of dialogue but when it is parsed down to just characters looking at each other sternberg creates like some of the most pure imagery uh or purely like emotionally charged imagery that you really can yeah, I really love, I think there's a beautiful juxtaposition in like the seedy underbelly of where this story is taking place and just sort of the working class quality of the characters that like through the mise-en-scene and like camera movement builds like a really theatrical um, like formal style that feels like it should almost be like against like the dirtiness of the mm-hmm. nature, but it just, it works so well together. No, I feel like, um, you know, this is kind of earlier in Sternberg's career, kind of at least, yeah. before he starts working with like Dietrich. And like, I feel like this film's a lot more sweeter and romantic to, you know, some of the acidity some of those later you know, movies have. I mean, the devil is a woman. Come on. <laughs> hey. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a little salty there, but, um, no, and it's just, yeah, the way he frames these club scenes, too. I mean, what he does with, like, these vast swarfs of people is just amazing. Some of the best, like, extra work I've seen, like, whenever Sternberg just cuts to a random person, it, it you know, it's so felt and lived in. Yeah, and also the camera movement here is it's still kind of sparse, but it's so impactful that it feels like he's moving throughout that whole scene. But that opening scene in the club, not opening, but, you know, 10 minutes or so in uh, that first scene in the club 
there's only a couple of those really big sweeping camera movements and they're at you know the front and back end of the scene but the movement of character and also the panning camera throughout uh makes it feel like he's almost never staying still uh and yet the composition always feels so measured um really just completely going off before we then see may's attempted suicide and Bill, you know, uh, rescuing her and that amazing uh, chiaroscuro lighting when he's like carrying her away and they're walking on that dock. Uh, and you just like see the fog of the night over the ocean on most of the screen, but the left you know, third of the screen is him carrying her over his shoulder. And it's such a great use of the black and white contrast there uh, within like, I don't know, using the architecture and the ocean as well, framing that shot. No, yeah, I feel like Sternberg does a uh, like a, a great job, just uh, of course like deciding where to frame it, but like like picking what objects to put in front of the frame. I mean, I think another great part of this movie is kind of the uh, the example of the bad marriage that happens between the captain and his wife, and I think there's a great scene where they're kind of arguing with each other. That's just kind of the camera's placed behind a bed frame, and it's completely framed yeah. around that. And I think the way uh, Sternberg kind of weaves these two storylines or it's just you know basically doing a, a compare and contrast with these two couples really affected me on this rewatch like i think he's doing some really smart work here uh, once they go back into the bar eventually uh you get some of uh george bancroft as bill you get some of his most <laughs> swagged out moments as he's trying to impress may further <laughs> yeah uh, when he just like throws a dude to the ground and then takes his beer <laughs> just <laughs> incredible uh not giving a single fuck you know he's a he's a bamf as we said earlier <laughs> i mean him you know fucking popping open a barrel of beer and yeah. drinking it and then throwing the barrels around like he's He's Donkey Kong. I mean, <laughs> what better way to pregame for a date than that? You know, that's going to get your testosterone, you know, up, pheromones up. It's going to be good results there. Speaking of pheromones, yeah, I love the old-timey horniness in this. Like, when they're on the ship, they have the drawings of naked ladies that they're all staring at. Like, just one last glance at our hand-drawn pornography <laughs> before we hit the docks. And then when he's showing off all his tattoos, it's like he has, you know, tributes to all the women that he's slept with, but also just, like, womanly figures drawn just, like, for him to look at hornily, I guess. Yeah, I, I was like, when all the co-workers are looking at the drawings of the woman, it kind of reminds you, like, one of your co-workers is like, yo, yo, check this out. Check out this picture of my girlfriend. It's like a nude that he's something like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Have your co-workers shown you pictures of their girlfriends? Oh, like, I know. I, I mean, one time, yeah, it happened. One I'm, time, like, I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm not acting like it's a, an everyday occurrence. But I've heard other people say something like that before. Or just a random woman. You no, know? oh yeah, yeah I yeah. get like I, get I mean that, all the yeah. time it's like there's so, like guys I work with just pointing out women on the street. It's, oh, uh, that's even oh, well, it's that the is, horniness yeah. of. I mean, while the we're on this class. topic, uh, there is this one. Oh God, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like on my lunch break two restaurant jobs ago at the sushi place and this guy uh that worked in the kitchen pulled me aside he's like dude you gotta look at this video and he showed me a video on his phone and it's like a guy like holding a woman like her feet are on his hand he's like holding her up you know like a cheerleading maneuver you know okay. and he's also um playing with her with her with his other hand uh and then he just like drops her and like it's looks really painful and he's just like the dude that's showing me the video is just laughing i'm like all right dude you showed it to me. Like, i really have no no reaction to that it's a very it was a very strange thing to show your coworker that you've never talked to true <laughs> now you're getting me all hot and bothered at work 
making me interact <laughs> awkwardly with the customers. What no, better but, way to bond than graphic pornography? No, exactly. Yeah. Like I've watched you know seven hundred films since then, and that image from that video is still stuck in my <laughs> mind. With that guy holding that woman up, just such a strange image. <laughs> Why is he doing? This? Yeah, back to Docs of New York. Yeah, I'm yeah. so sorry for that diversion, <laughs> Joseph von Sternberg. If you're listening from the afterlife, I'm really sorry for disrespecting your film like this. I think he, I think he liked the that talk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I really love the way that he's creatively like framing uh, characters against mirrors and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, in the nightclub, there's a long sequence that's all played off of a mirror very cleverly. Uh, and just like the use of deep focus to make May's apartment look huge, even though it's clearly like a small, cramped apartment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. He's just... He's exploring these spaces, and they're not even real spaces. They're obviously movie sets, So, but it feels like he's exploring real spaces rather than crafting sets to move his camera through, you know? Oh, absolutely. I feel like her bedroom set, is you really get a feel for it. It's like, you know, those seagulls at the window, and, like, she's always striking matches off the wall. It's like you're really getting the most out of, like, what kind of seems, you know, like a cheap, sparse-looking set, but, you know, that fits with, you know, the narrative that's going on in the story. And just like outside that as well, like the way this sort of is it like an apartment like complex kind Seems of like se- an inn, but like I don't an know. inn, mm-hmm. like just that, like when it's like a little bit later on, and uh, the the guy's been shot up there. Um, when it's just crowded with people, it oh, just yeah. like looks like such a like I don't know. It feels like a real place. Mm-hmm. There's also a really crazy matte background, like when they're eating at that diner and you see out the window of the diner, crazy matte backgrounds. And it's like, yeah, I watch this on a shitty like DVD rip that's been on YouTube for 10 years. And I really wish I could see it on a print because there's so much detail in these backgrounds and these sets and like sternberg's uh aesthetic almost lends itself to like DVD quality in a way, the way he filters his images so much. But there's also so much that I feel like is always missing in these very clearly deteriorated forms of his, especially his silent films that I've seen, uh, especially Underworld. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I like that Underworld's one. Underworld's awesome. Bullied? That's like his, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bull, <laughs> one of dude, the best the character killer, names ever. A headline that says Killer Bullweed is like awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if you need that 720 for Docs, dude, I got you. I got you. I think it was 720, but it looked like DVD. I don't uh, know. It yeah. just looks like it looks like DVD no matter what to me. I don't know. I think the prints are probably just deteriorated to that point. And also, it's part of his aesthetic, the kind of filtered out images a little. Sure. Or hazed out images, rather. So, the crazy night continues as uh, Bill finally wins over the heart of the woman who he rescued and uh, they get married and they get the, uh, who, who do they get? Like a pastor to come to the bar? One of my favorite character names ever, Himbo Carey. And I, <laughs> I love I love this scene. I love the marriage scene and like how Himbo Carey is kind of has such a contempt for everyone at the bar yeah. who's having a good time. And it really kind of shows you kind of like, uh, you know, the kind of fun power structures of like a bar or something like that compared to the real world. Like that kind of that drunken woman who comes up and kind of jokingly marries them before him book Harry does. It's kind mm-hmm. of like Sternberg kind of celebrating, you know, these bar dwellers, these dege- degenerates, you know, yeah. this is, this is their realm and they're the him book Harry of their own bar. And it's also just like, I guess it, is people that uh, they don't know. It's just these strangers at a bar, but these people are getting married. So this whole crowd forms around the marriage and it's yeah. like, 
they're performing or something yeah. like that but it's just because <laughs> it's this sense of community that they have i love i love when uh i think when i think it's yeah the lady who's like fake marrying them at first you know it's like that she asks like does anyone have a reason to object this marriage and everyone in the bar just cheers like yeah (laughs) very hilarious classic bit that's why they don't say that at weddings anymore because everyone (laughs) did that bit since the Mm -hmm. 20s that's very dramatic back in the 20s back in the 20s that wasn't hack at all (laughs) it wasn't a joke in shrek (laughs) that's that's i don't know why they put that in there that's they're playing with fire with that shit (laughs) you really are the first time i mean i'm sure people have had this observation but the first time i went to a wedding and they didn't say that i was like what the fuck (laughs) this was my moment i was gonna step up i was like yeah i was turning my shoulder to see what random dude was gonna object to my aunt's marrying i've loved you forever That's my that was my little bit of yeah. the the man who interrupts the wedding. <laughs> no, I mean I think TV and movies did firmly plant in my mind that at every wedding there was going to be one spurned lover True. that would disrupt the ceremony. That, that makes you that makes you cautious. It's like I don't know if I'm gonna you know what if you know the old ex shows up. That's a powerful that's a powerful at the wedding interruption. That's not a more powerful move than that. Pretty embarrassing though. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> pretty theatrical. It's a risky move. It's a risky move for sure. Anyway. So they get married uh, and they, you know, spend the night together, although uh, she knows that he's going to have to go back, uh, you know, and he goes back on the boat. And what what is it that leads to him getting fired slash quitting? He just he's, um, he's fed up with it, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's just thinking about her. Yeah. And he just like yeah. starts swimming back. Yeah. He realizes he's just looking. Exactly. He's looking into that pit of fire that he's stoking and realizing there was a woman that just did that to my heart. <laughs> I love how he's like, to her, he's like, I never missed a boat. I got to go fucking shovel coal for 12 hours. I don't, yeah. don't want to hang out with you. Yeah. The way he's so like unromantic about it at first and sort of like clearly like acknowledging the performative act of like getting married beforehand where he's like, I think he says to his friend, any port in a storm yeah. <laughs> before he like returns. But this is about, you know, the bullheaded you know, growing big in hearts. Exactly. And so he has that heart-to-heart moment while he's on the boat, uh, shoves his boss out of the way, jumps into the ocean, and swims back to the dock. And uh, where's the old lady? She's not waiting for him at the bar. She's at night court. Because that's where dames (laughs) used to go in the olden days. Dames like her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, she's there because... um, Bill Bill had stolen her a bunch of clo- uh, clothes when she had first jumped into the water because she didn't have any. Now she's caught with the clothes. She's about to do time in the clink. So Bill, you know, straightens things out, and uh, he's going to be doing the time instead. And they have their final exchange. You know what? And she said that uh, hell, she'd wait forever for him or something along those yeah. lines. And uh, it's really touching. I got to say, we're speaking of it lightly, but. Uh, uh, I'd be lying if I said each two times that I've watched this over the years that a little tear didn't crawl down my face right. o- ever so slowly during that exchange. Um, four and a half bullets for me. It's not like my very favorite Sternberg, but it's right up there uh, with like the Dietrich stuff for me. He, he's just one of the most expressionist filmmakers, silent or sound. And so, of course, in a silent film, he's going to be as expressionist as possible with the camera. And uh, yeah, it's a it's just a really uh, emotionally involved and narratively snappy and visually uh, opulent and beautiful film. No, yeah, I'm gonna give it five bullets. I feel like this is my favorite Sternberg. 
to be honest. And you know, I've seen like maybe only maybe like five or six, but I mean, yeah, I feel like this movie is just so full of romance, just till you know its entire core, and just it's reflected in its you know the image crafting and the acting, which is very good. And I don't know, just this is a movie that keeps you entertained. I, you know, people were always talking about at least when I joined film Twitter, people would always talk about Michael Mann club scenes and you know, those are great too. And it's like, I feel like this is like kind of the big Genesis of that, you know, the beginning of that almost kind of like these Sternberg kind of uh lady in a bar movies. And, uh, this is my favorite one. Bancroft is a, is, you know, he's a total G he's throwing barrels, <laughs> popping bottles. How can you not love an alpha dog like that? Um, JT, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm giving this one uh, four and a half bullets like Eddie. I really love this picture. I think on on rewatch, I might hit it with the five, but I'm going to be a little cautious today. <laughs> Don't um, be afraid to love, JT. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really soaked that message in from the movie entirely. Yet, Did Joseph so still... von Sternberg love love? <laughs> I think he, wasn't he like famously an incel? Like he didn't get any pussy? <laughs> Someone confirmed that. You can that still for love me. love and not get pussy. I mean, I guess. Some of our biggest simps. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, it's all good. Um but yeah, I love the uh big theatricality to every like aspect of this. It keeps it like entertaining. Like with what we we're saying about the Bill character, just how all of his like he comes across so thoroughly because it's these big performative gestures. The pounding barrels, stealing clothes, just uh, jumping in the sea to see the woman he loves. And I think that, like, it's rare that it can get, like, a romanticism and also have that, like, real working class character that this film has, like, where it's in love with, like, regular, ordinary people. And uh, great picture. We'll be back on Extended Clip to talk about ordinary people. <laughs> And we're back on Extended Clip. It's Malcolm in the Middle, everyone's favorite segment. Uh, Malcolm, you watched anything this week? Yes, I did. I watched a little movie called Color of Night. Now, have you guys heard of this? Color of Night? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> so, Color of Night, uh, directed by Richard Rush. It's an erotic thriller, thriller from the 90s, and... When I was like 16, my original plan for podcasting was like, I'm going to start an erotic thriller podcast by a 16-year-old boy. People are going to want to hear that shit, but it didn't pan out. Um, but this is always one I, I'd heard of, never watched, and it kind of has a bad reputation, but I, I enjoyed it a, a good amount. I mean, it's a lot of the the classic, uh, you know, erotic thriller cliches, you know, a crazy woman, you know, ruining a guy's life. But at first, you know... Um, the first hour is kind of uh, Bruce Willis kind of taking over this therapy group that was his friends. And you, I think, uh, uh, what do you call it? Yeah, Jake Ryan. I, I know he listens. He, he called it, you know, this is my breakfast club. And that, so I kind of thought of that in that mind frame. And it really, I know, guided the movie for me. I really enjoyed it. And I always forget that Bruce Willis like rules. Like he's oh, really he's awesome. He's really good in this. And like, you know, you see like once upon a time in Venice trailers, you're like, oh, you know, cashing another check. Mm -hmm. But you know, he was he was once great. He was a king, dude. Mm -hmm. Uh especially like early career when he was just a TV star. I watched a Letterman appearance back then. It was like Bruce Willis Destoner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's written by Billy Ray. You know, we've given him a shout out before. Although the screenplay kind of sucks towards the back end. <laughs> shout out Billy Ray though. Um, and you know, one thing I love about erotic thrillers, I love seeing an erotic thriller house, like this very like modern sparse design and like kind of like a, 
you know, a lot of like glass doors and shit like that. And you get a nice, expensive, erotic thriller house. And, you know, honestly, that's good enough for me. So I'm done. Do you think Body <laughs> Double has the best erotic thriller house? That's no, no. I don't. I don't. I think, it's, do I think? think it's good, but it's not exactly what I think when I think erotic thriller house. I like Yeah, the, that I one like is more like the erotic thriller houses are like mansions with rooms with rooms in them yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. I, I don't know off top would be my favorite i'd have to do some i'd have to go back through my archives but <laughs> um which which one of you guys want to go uh I'll, I'll go i'll go i also got a little erotic uh nice. this that's this what week. i like to hear man <laughs> um but it's a lot it's it's a sadder type of erotic um Damn. with where i'm i'm continuing going ozu mode which speak of the devil did you guys know that we have a patreon going for two dollars a month you can uh, uh pay us and you'll get <laughs> <laughs> an, damn <laughs> an extra episode of the podcast well what's on there right now if people you know if they if they get the patreon they get that rss feed they load up their podcast app what is the newest, freshest, hottest episode for them to look at? The hottest, freshest, newest episode is uh, us talking about Equinox Flower, a classic Ozu film. Um, and there's so much more shit on there, like us talking about uh, Fairly Brothers from way back when we started it. A lot of a lot of good stuff in the trenches there. Patreon.com slash extended clip. Anyway, JT, uh, what, 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 where are you going with this plug? Is this part of your middle segment? <laughs> um, did you, did, is that what you watched this week, our Patreon? No, I watched uh, <laughs> Woman of Tokyo, uh, 1933 Ozu movie about a woman who is uh, working as a prostitute um, to sort of help her, I think it's like her brother, um, go through uh, college, yeah. and uh, it it's pretty bleak. Um, it doesn't wind up too well for her. Ultimately, I think the the brother uh, kills himself uh, because he finds out <laughs> uh, that she's uh, she's a whore. Um, it's not great. <laughs> Frankly, if one of my sisters did that to pay for my college education, I would thank them. Yeah, I don't know. That's funny that she's doing that without his permission. He's like, "What the fuck? What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it was a different time. Um, but there's a really interesting scene because Ozu, the original Japanese cinephile, um, has a scene in this movie um, where uh, there's a date taking place um, seeing If I Had a Million, this 1932 pre-code like Paramount anthology film, which is just weird to see like in that time, just straight up like a scene from another movie yeah. in it. And it's like, I don't know. It's interesting to explore, like, just go continuing to go Ozu mode, seeing, like, what uh, actors and actresses he'll, like, name drop, like, what particular directors he's interested in. Because it, like, pops up, like, I don't know, I think there's at least, like, one movie nod uh, per flick. But it was a good one. Not, yeah. I, I, I don't think one of his best, but um, enjoyable nonetheless. Sounds like Ozu's a real movie nut. Eddie, you know you who else was movie? a you know who else was a movie nut? Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I'm sure he. I mean, made him, watched him. He really loved those movies. Oh my god, he couldn't get enough of them. We should talk like this. <laughs> the rest of this. <laughs> if there's one movie that defines Steven Spielberg as a cinephilic director, it is The Color Purple. Um, I watched this this week for the first time, and 
it is straight because I, I said that in jest, but it does have like old timey big gags in it, you know, for mm-hmm. being a big drama. It's like Spielberg is such a classicist, even if he is like a neoclassicist, I guess, but he's such like a classical director that he kind of can't help but having gags where like the brother falls through the roof of the house and stuff like that, you know? And I feel like it's a balancing act that creates something very strange and very easy to hate. You know, I I could see a lot of not just like left critique, but even just like anti-racist critique against this, obviously. And critique has been made. I'm not uh, supposing that there is, you know, Uh, you look at the letterbox, even a lot of great letterbox writers have it at, you know, one or two or whatever. But I think it's a really interesting place in his filmography and like almost at the height of his powers. Like he's been this dominant force of cinema for like 10 years now. And, you know, uh, E.T. is like a huge hit. And it's like, what are you going to do next? I'm going to adapt the like a defining black feminist text. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to adapt this uh, very, you know, just a black story with like only white characters as kind of tertiary figures and to structure the world around them and it's kind of i mean right there that's kind of problematic obviously uh but the result nonetheless is interesting uh i think if you're in the bag for spielberg the sentimentality is going to work a lot more than if you're not, obviously. I mean, you could say that about most of his films, but I think this film really could be divisive in his deployment of, like, classical melodrama. Um, but I think it's a good movie. You should check it out if you, got, if you have the chance. <laughs> anybody anybody, DVD. anybody heard of this one? I've heard of it. I just, I don't, I'm not, like, I like Spielberg, but there are a lot more misses for me than there are hits. Okay. Are you a Spielberger head? Yeah, Spielberger head. Um, yeah, I like, I like particularly, like, his, uh, like, his work in the 2000s. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I generally like him, but also he's not someone I'm, like, rushing, like, I gotta see all of his movies right now. Yeah, that's a, that's a slowly accumulating filmography project for me. Like, I've been going maybe four years watching a couple a year. I mean, I, I, I ran through his 2000 stuff early in quarantine, I think. And I love it. I, mm-hmm. I mean, Munich war, of the worlds catch me if you can, that stuff is top of the line, but, um, everything before then, I feel like I'm going to go through pretty slowly. Uh, but I, I'm holding out hope for a masterpiece. I think I've only given four as the highest rating to a Spielberg so far, but yeah. I've given quite a few fours. I think I like minority report. I rate pretty highly. But yeah, I, I really want to see Munich. I, I remember you talking about Munich. It sounded interesting. Yeah, we should uh, do Zohan and Munich as a double feature. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. That's like the ultimate uh, IDF uh, propaganda self-realization movies. <laughs> I should go to On Birthright. <laughs> we should. Maybe we Israel should can birthright. sponsor that episode. <laughs> we should go on Birthright and do that double feature there. <laughs> <laughs> Extended clip global. All right, we'll be back next time. <laughs> Boy, you don't believe it, boy. This motherfucker right here is stupid, boy. I need, I need, you want to take it for a spin? Boy, I got to. Man, that motherfucker, that's some that high power shit, y'all. I know that motherfucker right there, cost, y'all. Yeah, yeah, they have nothing to do with Bontemac, no matter what happened, boy. Keep that motherfucker rolling, but don't never turn it off, no matter what. I'm talking about goddamn, it can be a robber, a rape, a killing, or anything, boy. All right, baby, yeah, yeah. And we're back on extended clip. Snow on the Bluff is the B film of our double feature today. Directed by Damon Russell, the film from 2011. And I have one question for you. Is this shit real? 
I think it kind of is. Yeah, I think right? It is like uh, I was reading an interview with Damon Russell, and he has a big background in reality television, did a lot of MTV shows and shit like that. And uh, they're asking him about his process. And like he had filmed, he just followed Curtis. He followed Curtis, you know, the main character, Curtis Snow, for about a year and a half. And like he was, his tendency is just to narrativize everything and kind of bring some fictional aspects. So like I think him stealing the camera from the college students, obviously, yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> fake. But you know, all them, all them drugs he's cutting up, all that dope he's bagging up might be real but of course for legal reasons they're never ever gonna disclose that yeah. you know and even if it is all fake more credit to them. i mean yeah if it if it's if this is all fake then this is like people should study this but i i don't that, think, it I is. think people should study this film regardless True, yeah this, yeah, this yeah. is like a real i may have not have rated it too highly but i think this is like a super interesting film especially I, for this era of found yeah. footage i think also like come to think of it like you think of like a lot of these you know uh, white filmmakers credit you know filmmakers are like with someone like the Safties or even like mm-hmm. Harmony Corinne and kind of like their um, kind of uh, how they dip their toes and kind of like uh, these you know crime escapades and I feel like this is definitely very influential and definitely a movie I think they they watched maybe learned a thing or two from well you sent a tweet to the discord from the Safties talking about this movie which showed that they watched it back in the day um 2011 so i guess they were in between their early features Mm -hmm. and i think this might be more effective in terms of a study of a milieu than someone like the Safties, who uh even if they do aim for that handheld realism their style uh their form points more to a cinematic version of realism whereas damon russell is I guess using reality TV editing tactics to approximate handheld actual realism. Yeah, I mean, I feel like like the the line where it is ambiguously like real or fake at parts is definitely like I don't know. It's what I like most about the film, and I think is what makes this really interesting to study and talk about. But also, I feel like it it brings up like a great deal of like issues necessarily with like how. Um, I don't know, just how Snow's life progresses like afterwards. I don't know if you yeah, fellas exactly. dipped into reading the Wikipedia page. It's rough. Uh, it is but rough. yeah, it gets... we should get to it at the end. That'll be that'll yeah. be like the fourth act of the movie that we describe. I, <laughs> I to be honest, yeah, I, I didn't look into that, but I saw his Instagram. It seemed like he was doing all right, but I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have we'll have a little talk Fuck. at the end you of know, this. You don't post everything that happens. In your life. <laughs> I'll say that much. Well, damn. I guess we should just say it anyway. All right, yeah. yeah. Um, he was arrested in, after a three-hour-long standoff with a SWAT team in an Atlanta funeral home in May 2016. After locking himself inside the woman's bathroom, police extracted him using tear gas, and he was arrested on an unrelated aggravated assault warrant. Dang, and he's he's in jail right now? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't like follow up more on that. Okay. It seems like when you get arrested by a SWAT team, you go to jail, though, right? I feel yeah. like you're probably in jail. I think for he's a out. Long time. Like I was looking at his Instagram, it seemed like he was out. Like he was like, pretty recently. Yeah, yeah. He was posting videos of himself. Yeah, like 2020 okay. suit. Well, that's oh, good. Okay. That's yeah, good yeah, for yeah. him. How's he taking the pandemic? <laughs> he hasn't addressed it, but he's he's lent his name to a lot of mixtapes. Okay. So there that's there a good is way to some mask wearing in this film, regardless. Yeah. So we should get to the film. I saw that. What what is that? I mean, you wear a mask when you do crime. True, right? true, true. And those masks have always been around. Just now they're at the front of your uh, grocery store. And now stuff they're like that. the new normal. <laughs> Ever heard about that? Ever hear of 2020? <laughs> um, so Curtis Snow 
uh, the protagonist of this film. He steals a camcorder from some potentially gentrifying white druggies who come to the hood to buy the good stuff. Uh, And he then documents his life. It turns into something between found footage, the staged reality show, and kind of uh, like the melodramatic hood movie genres, you know? And the procedure of sloppy robberies with some introspection and taking care of his family, uh, doing a bit of time in jail, you know, it doesn't quite cohere into a traditional dramatic arc. But the structure, which is almost like a GTA mission structure, uh, speaks to the very cyclical nature of this milieu, which they actually talk about in the film. Uh, when he has that monologue talking about how he's living a still life. You uh, know? Wonderful moment. I love how he also points out that you like I'm the only one out here with a, a bag of crack tattooed on my hand. Like I'm really yeah. about this. She's still here. Can we still here? Just still life. Still smoke. Still drinking. Still. Staying alive, still taking care of children or whatever. Still scrap. We just steal. We just steal. Speak on this movie's influence a little bit more. I mean, I feel like this is maybe like the last uh, hood movie people really responded to mm-hmm. in a positive way. Like, I feel like, I mean, I was looking it up. I think he like kind of term uh, coined the term "fuck twelve" or at least popularized it. Like, there's shit like like we ball. Like, I think he mm-hmm. says like "fuck it, we ball." I know yeah. a lot of rappers say that, and I feel like a lot of rappers, you know, watched this movie and it, you know, there is a yeah. segment on the Wikipedia, I think on the Wikipedia or something related where it's like references in music. <laughs> like, I know. Uh, yeah. If, mm-hmm. if you, yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure our uh, listeners who frequent the rap genius sub forums <laughs> pull something together. <laughs> Yeah, I saw J. Cole released a song this year called Snow on the Bluff. Not the biggest Cole fan, but respect for keeping the the bluff uh, mythos alive. Yeah, exactly. This film, like, I don't know, the textures of it, it seems like they shot it on mini DV and then, like, threw the tapes in the ground before they digitized them, you know? There's such a, like, it seems like it's a camera that's on autofocus and the autofocus doesn't quite work all the way sometimes, Mm -hmm. but... These seem like also very intentional choices by Damon Russell. I think another interesting thing that I found out from this interview that should should be said is that Russell said that he wasn't even there for like half of the filming and they would just be one of, Damn. Uh, you know, Blow's friends mm-hmm. um, who would be filming it and like Ert Blow, Curtis Blow. <laughs> <laughs> These are the breaks, you know? What, what can I say? <laughs> Curtis, uh, Curtis Snow. It rhymes. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I can't, you know, I, I can't in my mind be like, oh, yeah, I could definitely tell when Russell was, you know, t- off the camera and one of his friends was doing it. But it's, I don't know. It's just something to consider. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it's a distinction of uh, that that I can tell necessarily. But like the scenes where it seems to completely go out of focus and like when he uses the night vision versus the nighttime scenes where it's just played completely in the dark for whatever reason, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, they all, they feel like choices in the very least in Damon Russell's editing of the film Mm -hmm. or Damon Russell and the editors, uh, editing of the film, which I think is one of the more impressive aspects of the, how, you know, think of all the footage that they've probably shot for this, how it's condensed in a very short, you know, 78 minute movie. And, you know, it gets across a lot of the details, like expositional details, in a pretty like fast and speedy way. Oh to yeah, where you, you know you get to the the dope house, Robin, mm-hmm. which is you know the more action filled parts of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I like how it like coheres just like a little bit. Yeah. Like, there's just enough of a thread to like prevent it from like getting like I I don't know boring or or like oh, repetitive. 
But I mean, I think it does. I mean, it definitely is a little repetitive. But I mean, that definitely seems like the point in terms of the mm-hmm. cyclical nature of it. Um, early on when he's kind of giving a tour of the neighborhood of the block, he's like also just giving a tour of death. Kind of, he's just pointing out where all of his friends died and where like the mom of his first kid died, and like uh, all this like crazy stuff just interwoven with other stories, like where he kills someone for the first time, or you know the parts of the block where certain people live, and it's uh, a really great way of yeah distilling all of this like history of this character and the people around him into a seventy-eight minute movie. And before he goes to jail in the movie, it really only ta- it seems to only take place over a few days, even though that's clearly yeah like a year's worth of footage, which is just an absolute feat of editing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know it's, this film's kind of fragmented. I would say, of course, like you said, it coheres you know in a slight satisfying way, mm-hmm. but I, I it really stands out to me just when this the it kind of uh, slows down or kind of, you know, pumps the brakes. I think uh, when uh, Snow first gets out of prison and they kind of have that block party, I think this is when that happens. And then there's like this, uh, you know, random man telling him like about a a dope house or whatever. And you kind of just get this very still like two shot of them by a dumpster. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little bit, out of place and, you know, stiller than the rest of the movie. And it's just uh, effective. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I think that, like, while the action drives it along, the meandering moments of character are just, like, I mean, again, it's impossible to say what's real and what's fake, but I think those feel the most real where it just sort of ventures off a little bit. And it's also, like, you described someone... Uh, describing to him a new dope house and that scene is more detailed than the other times because it feels like throughout this movie just new dope houses are just popping up only to get robbed you know it's like oh there's a new spot okay let's rob it oh there's a new spot and also speaking to that cyclical nature of course um i I, i'm definitely coming around on the film more i think when i watched the the fragmented kind of element of it maybe detached me a little from it it's like it's light on arc, I guess, but it's not light on incident at all. Yeah. Something is going on at all times, even in the more still scenes, like that scene where he's just bowling uh, in the street, just rolling a bowling <laughs> ball down the block to the liquor store. Oh, that's Incredible. awesome. Incredible. And the camera just uh, lingering on the ball, like that shot of the can rolling down the hill in close up. No, yeah, that feels like a very genuine moment, you know, of just kind of like small pleasures. Remember my dad would always used to tease me. It's like, you could just be entertained by anything because I just like play with a balloon for an hour or just like a rubber band or something like that. Those those are some of the most satisfying things in life mm-hmm. to me. Just rolling a ball down a hill. I, I, but also, I think, I, you know, this movie's not light on character. I think Curtis Snow is insanely charismatic, especially oh, yeah. especially a scene I feel like in the first scene where it's kind of um, kind of sets things up a little bit more with the first dope house robbery as like he, there's a dope house across the street and he has you know the two girls he knows go and check on it he's just cracking jokes or just like how how uh, eager he seems just to you know get get busy get to action it's just kind of uh you know it's kind of funny he has like a very he's taking this in a very like fun way this is fun for him exactly and i think it also speaks to again that like reality tv background of damon russell in that that whole procedural uh, it feels very cinematic, but it's also cut together so quickly where it's like it feels like a movie and how smooth that whole procedure goes where I'm sure it was a lot sloppier and took a lot longer than that. 
But that sloppiness is still on display in the action when they actually rob these people. It's always very like sloppy and just mm-hmm. like fucking go, go, go because someone messed up in some capacity mm-hmm. uh, or just because it's a sloppy job in general uh, because it's hard to rob people, I'm guessing. I don't know. <laughs> they make it look uh, pretty easy the first time. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. But they do come into trouble like, oh, every yeah. time, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's really a lot more thrilling than uh, a, a job that goes perfectly that you would see in the like the oceans movies <laughs> no that is true to kind of to think like like i do like these ocean movies and kind of like the procedural aspects of them but like this kind of creates its own kind of sloppy procedural style that's just really it's really fast but it's also just really abrasive i feel like every time they rob someone it kind of has this motif you know intentional or not where the camera's just blurry and like i think the first robbery it's kind of blurry the whole time and then mm-hmm. The, a few ones after that it kind of focuses up as it gets closer to characters but it it's always a I, I always a very effective technique because it's like, especially the times where it comes into focus it's kind of like you're like oh what am i getting into like what's what's going to be the scene here what am i i'm rushing in with these guys what am i going to see am i going to be surprised <laughs> am i going to get shot I think that's what Damon Russell wanted the white audiences watching this film to come away with asking, am I going to get yeah. shot? Am I, is this, am I in danger? Uh, is this safe to watch this movie? Uh, uh, kids, stay inside. Parents, take care of your children. We live in a dangerous society. Yeah. No, um, I mean, obviously it does speak to the society they live in, though, and like the uh, oppressiveness of the state to keep disenfranchised people in these milieus of criminality and it's really depressing you know obviously like there's a a pop edge to it obviously a very hardcore crime edge to the film but when you take even the slightest step back it all does become extremely depressing uh which of course is the intended effect of the film yeah Uh, even if it has that slightly uplifting ending of him you know contacting a video editor or something that i guess is the damon russell stand-in technically I I've, I kind of didn't see the ending as kind of like an upbeat swing. I kind of like. Well, I don't know yeah, about that because yeah. everything around it is falling apart, but yeah. it still feels like a positive, very last beat in an otherwise tragic third act. That is true. It does. Yeah. It, it feels like the most movie like. It's like, hey, I got to turn in this tapes. So let's make the movie. Yeah. And then it's like the end. You just saw the movie. <laughs> and it fades to white, too, mm-hmm. which feels, you know, I don't know. Uh, but. I don't know. This is a really good movie. I'm going three and a half. I'm going to go three and a half bullets as well. Bullets is apt for this movie. And, you know, I, I, I love rap music, like like a lot of, you know, trap based rap music. And it's finally, you know, it's fun to see a movie about what they describe. And it's like, you know, you'd, of course, there are a lot of like hood movies, not so much anymore. But I think that, you know. Trying to, I'm kind of talking scrambled here, but to gather my thoughts, there are a good amount of hood movies, but they're very like low budget, uploaded to YouTube, and like uh, they'll have like a rapper star in them. This is a very Atlanta based uh, practice too. I've noticed like you, you could just randomly find like like four movies where Gucci Mane's just acting in them or not, and I think it's a lot of it's due to Snow on the Bluff. I feel like a lot of people, you know, it took inspiration. Like I feel like because like rappers used to re- release these DVDs too of like how they were living before like uh youtube and vlogs and stuff like that and you'd see like just little boozy hanging out with his friends i mean there's that classic clip of like little boozy like uh putting a bunch of 50s on the floor and he's like if you see a 20 i'm a pussy if you see a 20 i'm pussy uh, great clip and like i don't it just combines a lot of things 
that I like and that I haven't seen on screen before. So I, I commend Damon Russell and uh, Curtis Snow. JT, what um, do you think? I'm also giving this one three and a half bullets. I think it, like... I don't know. The moment that you realize it's this blend of reality and fiction, it becomes like so much more fascinating because I mean, even without knowing that there's like clearly a sense of specificity and truth to all of the material. But like, I, I don't know. I'm less concerned with parsing out what's real and what's fake and more so concerned with like what moments like feel effective and like speak to something larger um, whether they're like staged or not, but I we didn't mention after uh, Snow's like ex girlfriend is like killed, and one of uh, the good a good part of the third act is like him dealing with the fact that he has to like be like actively like a father now, and just I mean there's the there's the big scene where he's like talking about how um, his uh, like child watching him like. Uh, fill up the bags is like him as a child like uh, watching his uncle do that but there's a moment beforehand where he's like talking to his it's a little boy right Mm -hmm. Um, where he's just saying like don't cry and this kid is just like wailing because his mother has died and he's like don't cry like you're a man like you're a man now and just like that shit is so brutal and just like bleak and um I don't know that really like it makes all the fun and excitement of this movie just like I don't know snaps you out of it in that moment where you realize that there is like such intense real life repercussions and like I don't know plays into Snow's own story because it's like um, I was really hopeful that like maybe after the film like he would have been able to through like the notoriety of it been able to like improve his situation like a little bit Mm -hmm. and I'm glad his Instagram (laughs) is certainly positive now yeah um but I don't know it the reality of the situation speaks truth to the movie but the fact that he was swatted in 2016 yeah Yeah, I think I think uh, I like the turn too and then like a lot of like these uh you know quote-unquote hood movies especially in the 90s they'll have like kind of like this uh, moralizing you know part to it of course a, a lot of them would you know kind of argue both sides but it's also it's like you know this stuff is destroying the communities stuff like that whereas like uh, snow on the bluff is going for more uh, like a realist angle and kind of just presents it to you and it just feels so much more human and natural yeah it's not moralizing yeah. on it because it's like this is like they fucking have to do this yeah yeah like, exactly exactly um one other piece of extra textual information uh, beyond the SWAT arrest and the baller lifestyle, like as part of the baller lifestyle, uh, Snoop Dogg uh, produced under one of his like streaming banners a couple of unauthorized sequels, uh, and the first one led to like Snow attempting to sue uh, the it's like Trap Flicks Entertainment or something yeah. like that. The sequels came out, but then apparently they made up. I was just like skimming through a transcript of an interview uh, from this year where uh, Snow talks about going to Los Angeles to settle with Snoop Dogg and Snoop Dogg paid him 30 grand and he spent it all in like a weekend and went broke in Los Angeles. Like yeah, Jesus Christ. Uh, but hey, that's living, you know? That's fun times right Exactly. There. If that ain't living, I don't know what is. You can't even spend 30000 in a day anymore. Uh, freaking, have you heard of COVID? Yeah, Newsom. <laughs> Going to French Laundry up in Napa. We saw you. Maybe we want a little, you know, sip of the grapes too, huh? You ever think about that? <laughs> All right, let's let's come on. Um, 
Uh, yeah, but this is a really good film. I mean, I already gave it a rating, yeah. so fuck it. Still good. Still a good movie. Still a good movie. Uh, still no emails. <laughs> <laughs> everything's just still here. Just everything's yeah. still, you know, still podcasting, still checking the email, uh, all that good stuff. I'm going to check one more time. Sorry. No, it's all, it's all good. Nope, no emails. Uh, new patron, but we don't shout out patrons on this show because apparently that's corny. <laughs> You don't have to bring this beef to the pod. Yeah. I don't want to reward the listeners, but yeah. you know what? Just a blanket statement. If you've given to the Patreon, I love you. Yeah, it's true. I thought you were about to be like, we won't shout you out. It's like, no. No, I, if, you, I, if you need I, that no, type JT, of desperate you validation, didn't, you, didn't you can reach want, out to us and we'll see your fucking name on the show. Yeah, you don't get to talk during this segment because you said this segment shouldn't exist. Uh, uh, so to the new patrons and to the old patrons and to the canceled patrons, I love you. Yeah, hit us up. I I love you. <laughs> love you. Hit hit us up. <laughs> Talk to you later. Still no email. Uh, so next week on the podcast, uh, we're gonna try. We're speaking of love. We're gonna find out that true love might actually be blind. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, what do you mean by that? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, we're gonna be talking about City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film, and we are going to be talking about. Three Days of a Blind Girl, the Hong Kong Category 3 exploitation film starring Anthony Wong and Veronica Yip. It's going to be a good episode. No, yeah, I'm like that you're bringing, I like that you're bringing a deep cut to the show. I feel like we haven't done that in a while with uh, Three Eyes of a, or Three Eyes, the Three hey. Days of a Blind Woman. Right? <laughs> I, I liked Three Days of a Blind Woman, but show me Three Eyes of a Blind Woman. <laughs> Hachi Machi, am I right? <laughs> And uh, as JT said, right now on the Patreon is our Ozu Spectacular. No, we'll do a pro. I think we should do another Ozu at some point. I was going to bring it back more broadly, but we did talk somewhat broadly on Ozu before getting into Equinox Flower. And uh, on our next Patreon, we are going to be talking about Clint Eastwood's play Misty for me for the fourth installment of everyone's favorite series, Radio Days. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, Clint Eastwood's life in Play Misty for me is kind of like if I stayed home, the kind of the career path I would have went down. So kind of watch it with that in mind. <laughs> yeah, it's a Malcolm surrogate style yeah. character. Carmel was like 40 minutes from where I grew up, so. If you want to email us, though, please, uh, come on, help us out here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're starved for I content. mean, it's just like I like doing the email segment. It's a yeah. fun part of the show. If no one wants to write in, it's fine. <laughs> Maybe just, this is what they like. Yeah, I'm going to start just when people ask me a question in real life, not even like related to <laughs> movies, I'm just going to bring it to the podcast. Just like, say, hold on, <laughs> hold that for a second. Listen to the podcast this week. Friend, All your answers are there. My friend Peter the other day was, nah, I don't have a bit. Oh, I thought you were going to. <laughs> no bit, sorry. Did he say something was freaking sweet? <laughs> I wish I was friends with Peter Griffin in real life, but not Stewie. Fuck that guy. I don't want to bring back our harshest beef we've had on the pod, whether we think Stewie or Peter owns more. <laughs> Stewie's a little twerp, man. I Peter love rules. Stewie. I will always love Stewie with all my heart. I'd have a beer with Peter. At Extended Clip 69 is our Twitter, and I would have a beer with Peter. I'd have a martini with Stewie. Oh. That lad has class. I can't deny the class. I'll give him that. Class over swag any day. <laughs> Hey, I'm gonna give a shout out. Shout out Males Soul on Instagram. Follow Males Soul on One Instagram. One of the most inspirational accounts for the podcast for sure. Um, buy K Packs on DVD. 
extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Please write to us, and we'll see you next week. Unless, JT, do you have a plug? Uh, no. Okay, we'll see you next week. Hell yeah, Pancho, man. Shit. Did this shit like a goddamn, you know what I mean? Like some shit, a routine now, man. I've been fucking with dope now about goddamn a good 15 years. Myself personally, but my uncles, cousins, whole generation of motherfuckers, you know what I mean? Been selling dope ever since I was goddamn born, way before I was even born. Like 25 years deep in the dope game, you know what I mean? First time I ever caught, I sold a nigga a knit for a dime. My uncle wasn't there. And I was at the spot. And got down. I know what a dope and all that was. I mean, I was about 12 years old. Sold a nigga a sack. Felt good about this shit. I was like, boy, boom, boom. Yeah, I got down. I had dope in my system when I was first born. <laughs>